This is Pastor Mark, the lead pastor at New Covenant Church. Today we start a brand new series called Haggai. It's a small book in the Old Testament, but has so much we can learn from for our life today. Today we'll go through the first chapter and examine if our priorities are actually God's priority. Now the book of Haggai is, um, it has a companion book in the Old Testament called Ezra, if you've ever heard of Ezra. And we'll kind of look at a couple of verses in Ezra to help us understand what Haggai is coming from. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't know if I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but every time I go to the grocery store, my wife just kind of rolls her eyes because she knows what's going to happen. So she'll go to the grocery store, get some stuff, and I'm like, "Well, you didn't get this, or you didn't get this," and I'm like, "I'm going to the store to get this," and she's like, "Yeah, whatever," because um, she knows that when I go to the store, I bring home more than just the item that I said I was going to bring. She's like, "I just went to the store, and you're bringing like all these other groceries. We don't have enough room for our fridge." I'm like. We got room. We'll fill it somewhere and everything. And, so, and then sometimes we'll go to this, I'll go to the store thinking, okay, this is what I'm going to get. And I'll get home and I'm like, I forgot the very thing that I was meant to get because I got distracted and got everything else but the item. We say to God sometimes, the, we, we, we change our priorities and say, God, let me take care of myself. Let me do my own thing. And it takes our distractions from the main thing, and that's to serve God and to follow God. We say, let us take care of ourselves. We buy what we want to buy, do what we want to do, and whatever is left, if there is anything left, we give it to God. And so really bringing us back to priorities, let's, let's kind of go back in the Bible to uh, several books so God has this pact with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel after wrestling with God, and Jacob has 12 sons. They migrate to Egypt because of this famine, because, you know, the story of Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt, and God uses him for that purpose, and the Israelites come, and they're able to be saved, so they migrate to Egypt. And the Israelites just start growing in families and numbers and overwhelming the Egyptians, and so the, um, over time, there's a new pharaoh that arises, and this pharaoh says, hold up, they're outnumbering us. They can easily attack us, so we need to put them in slavery. They need to work for us. And so they enslave the Israelites for all these years. And then God raises up Moses, and Moses comes, and God sets the people free through pharaoh, and the pharaoh chases them, and God wipes them out. And God says, the pact that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is I'm going to take you to this land that I've, uh, that I've left for you, that I've designed for you, and it's going to be filled with milk and honey. It's going to be this promised land. It's going to be wonderful. And then the Israelites decide, okay, cool. We're just going to continue to disobey God. And God says, okay, I've had enough. So you're going to sit in the desert for 40 years while the older generation dies and passes on, and the younger generation that's going to come up, or they're going to be taught the word of God, and they're going to be the ones that get to go into the promised land. So they get to this promised land, and, and they wipe out all these people, and it becomes their home as Joshua leads them there. And then once they get to their place, once they get to Israel, and, and they become, you know, that's their homeland, all of a sudden the people of Israel say, we want a king. And God says, I am your king. What do you mean? And the people say, well, we want a king we can see. We want a king we can talk to. And God says, fine, I'll give you a king. And God allows Saul to roll over them. And Saul is not necessarily a nice king. You know, he does good things for a while, but ends up being an evil, wicked king. 
And then after Saul comes David, and then after David comes Solomon, and Solomon builds this big temple for God. God says, I want to dwell in this place, this building. This is where my presence is going to be manifested, and this is where you're going to worship me. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes over the throne. And then there's a division in Israel. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So Israel is now divided with Solomon's son. And they start to sin and again go against God. The northern kingdom was really bad. And if you look through the history of Israel, rarely does the northern kingdom have any good kings. They're all wicked and evil. The southern kingdom was doing a little bit better as they had some godly kingdoms off and on. But there was this empire, the Assyrians, they come over and they take the northern kingdom out of Israel. So then there's the southern kingdom still there. And God uses this Babylonian empire to take the southern kingdom out of Israel. So there's no Jews in their promised land anymore. You have two wicked empires, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They take out the Jews from their promised land. And so then, eventually, the southern kingdom, as they're there with the Babylonians, the Babylonian empire falls, and then there, raise, there rises the Persian empire. And the Persian empire the first king was King Cyrus, and he says, you know what? Why are all these people here? Why don't they go back to their land? So King Cyrus says, if you want to go back to your home, go. So the Israelites are like, yes, we can go back home finally. And so they're going back home. So all the Jews are now in the southern kingdom coming back, and they start to build their homes and build the temple of God. Life is back on track. We're ready to move forward again. But Ezra, chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, is on the screen because I know we're focusing on Haggai. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So then after King Cyrus comes King Artaxerxes in verses 23 and 24 of the same chapter of Ezra. Ezra it says, then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and uh, Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews in Jerusalem and by force and the power made them cease. Verse 24, then the work of the, on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So now here comes, after King Cyrus, King, king Artaxerxes, now King Darius. And this is where we pick up in Haggai. So real quick, so the Jews start building this temple, and here's what happens. The governor, King Artaxerxes, says, you know what? Stop. I don't want that temple being built again. I don't want it being restored again. And so you have the government saying stop, and there was pressure there, obviously, when the government sends you a cease and desist letter, you know, it's probably smart to cease and desist. But not just that, but then rumors and lies started spreading around all the nations. And so all the, uh, the Israelites started believing all these lies and were becoming discouraged. And so you have the governor and all these lies about them, and it just discouraged them, so they ceased to stop building. Now, so Haggai chapter 1 Verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealti, 
and governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So the people are saying, you know what, maybe it's not time to rebuild the house because the governor says no, and the people were saying, no, we shouldn't. But then the word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai the prophet, verse 4, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you will never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag of holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for so much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all of their labors. So the Israelites caved. God wants his temple to be rebuilt, and they started, but then, like I said, the governor sends his letter and says, stop. They caved to political pressure. As the nations began to spread lies and rumors about the Israelites, they became discouraged, and they let the lies sink into their hearts And they just didn't want to build the house of the Lord. They simply let the house of God lie unfinished while they focused on their own lives and on their own homes. Verses 4 and 5, again, it says, God's saying, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So now, therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. God's a little sarcastic, basically. Oh, so you're so nice. You built your own homes and... You live in these fancy houses, and you're doing great. That's awesome. My house is still there. What are you going to do about it? The people allowed politics and lies to stop them from doing God's work. They became content where they were. They became content working and focusing on their own lives, which brings us to the first point is to follow God's call, you must loosen your priorities. You know, people say sometimes, I'm not ready to serve God. I'm not, I haven't heard from God, so I'm not going to do this certain thing. But it's funny. We, we play sports, and we, we watch television. We go to movies, and we go to sporting events. We do all these things. But do we ever ask God if we should do it? No, right? I mean, we just kind of do it because it's our life, right? We just enjoy life. I mean, God doesn't, you know, we don't have to ask, God, am I going to wear a black shirt today? Do I need to wear a black shirt today? We don't go that crazy, but it's funny that for simple things like that, we don't ask God, but to serve God, we have to ask God. Does that make sense? So to serve God, we have to ask God to serve him. It makes no sense. That's because priorities sometimes get out of whack. See, everyone in the world has enough time to give to God. doesn't matter how busy you are or what you have on your life. You always have time to give to God. And everyone has enough money to give to God. 
I remember at a church and, and we were going through this capital stewardship campaign about building and updating our, our buildings and everything. And, and then you hear some leaders saying, over the next three years, I want to give $60,000. And then over the next three years, I'm going to give $30,000. And you hear all these figures, you're like, well, that's, man, that's a lot of money. And then I look at my figure and I just, I really want to crumple it up because I felt discouraged because I'm looking at what they can give. And I'm just like, man, you know, maybe I should rethink. Maybe I should pray again because I felt like this was the number God gave me to give. And so I had to think. And I went to a board member and I said, hey, um, I feel kind of strange because everyone's given this large amount. And this is what I'm giving. And he says, well, Mark, I know what you make. He's like, that's, a, that's more of a sacrifice than those people. Trust me. And so I started thinking about it. And then, I, you know, the story in the Bible where this lady gave her a penny, all she had and Jesus focused on her giving, saying, look at her. That's the kind of person that you want to be giving, not because of the amount, but because of what she had. Everyone has enough to give to God, time, money. But do we have enough time and money to give to God and live a lifestyle we want? Maybe, maybe not, but are we willing to give up our time and are we willing to give up some extra money or funds to see God's kingdom advance, even though we might not be able to go to this certain thing or do this certain thing, right? It's again, it's all about priorities. We allow things to creep in our minds that distract us from doing what God's called us to do. And I'm not necessarily picking on this church, but you know, there's a mentality sometimes of we're a small church. There's the average attendance of an AG church is 70 people. That's the average size of an Assemblies of God church, 70. So there's a lot of smaller churches. And so you think in that mentality, well, we're just a small church. We don't have enough people. We're tied on finances. We don't have enough money to do these things. They're distractions. Because you think about this. Think about the size of Jesus' group. How many did Jesus have? 12 disciples. That's all he had. And then when you kind of break it down, it gets smaller because Jesus spent more time with three. But nevertheless, he had 12 people and you take out one of Judas, you have 11. And then of course Matthias and then eventually Paul. But it's a small group. So how in the world did 12 people become thousands because they didn't have the mentality of we're just small and we're only a few people. We can't do it. No, they had a mentality of God's kingdom must advance and we have the keys to it. We have the keys to life. We have the keys that people can be transformed and it's worth everything. We often say, I don't want to give my time or my money because it interrupts what I want to do. We're holding on our, to our priorities tightly. If you think about the rich young ruler, came to Jesus, and you know, I've said it before, I think, but you know, the perfect churchgoer was him. He's like, I kept all the commandments. That's pretty cool. He's not doing anything wrong. He keeps God at the top, he honors his parents, he keeps the Sabbath, he's not coveting anybody or anything. I mean, he keeps the Ten Commandments, he's doing well. And I'm like, and he's rich. 
I mean, can you imagine what kind of church person? I mean, like, okay, he keeps the commandments and he's rich. That means he can give. Oh, I like this guy. Let's get him in here. And Jesus' mentality and his priorities were completely different sometimes from what we would see. Because Jesus says, okay, go sell everything, then come back. And, of course, he left because giving would interrupt his lifestyle. And he wasn't willing to give up that. There was not a Ten Commandment. It is, in a sense, that you're keeping God above everything else, including money. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. You can only have one master, and it's either God or something else. God will not have another master or Lord over us. Giving costs, and I'm not talking about just finances. I'm talking about time, too. It costs us. Doing God's will over your own will cost you. God can't be Lord over your life as long as you have something else Lord over your life. As long as you have something in place, God will not be able to be Lord, and he wants to be Lord. That's what he's called to do. See, the Israelites here witnessed and heard stories about God in the past. I mean, these people were brought up listening and hearing about stories how God saved them from slavery from Egypt and how God spread the Red Sea. Some of them witnessed God spreading the Jordan as they crossed over with Joshua into the promised land. Some people witnessed things that God was doing, and yet they allowed the government and they allowed lies to control their heart. They forgot who God is and they forgot what kind of God they serve. Haggai just became dissatisfied with the status quo. Haggai was there and he's looking. Can you imagine they're starting to rebuild the temple and they stop. Now, prior to this, Jerusalem was just in ruins. It's just an abandoned city, been torn to shreds. It's just an abandoned place. And so when they get back, they start rebuilding, but they're rebuilding their homes. And so you get there and you see these homes that are being fixed up, that are being lavished and, and everything. And then you look at the temple of God, who they're supposed to be serving, who's supposed to be God of the nation. And you look at that and you see stone just sitting there. You see rubble. You see half-built walls. You see, you see a building that's supposed to house God. And it just sits there while they're doing their own thing. Their priorities got messed up. Haggai verses 10 through 11 says, Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, and on the ground that brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. What they were doing is they were rebelling against God's covenant. This is why the land wasn't producing anything. They would work hard and nothing was happening. Haggai quotes some curses from Deuteronomy. And he says, if you want to know why these things aren't happening, is because you have abandoned God because he wants to dwell with you and he needs a house to dwell in. And so they just let it sit there in ruins because God, so God can't be there with them. And let's finish the first chapter, verses 12 through 15. It says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shilti, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and with all the remnant of people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. 
And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, and the second year of Darius the king. So as Haggai presents these things and says, listen, you, your priorities have got messed up. You've focused on building your house and you let God's house lay in ruins and there's no place for God to dwell. Jesus hasn't, hasn't come yet and the sacrifice wasn't made so the Holy Spirit can come and dwell within us. So God had to have a house to dwell in. And they let that house just sit there in ruins and Haggai says, enough is enough. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of seeing you focus on this and, and not focusing on God. So Haggai gives this message and says, your problem is that you have disobeyed God. You have forgotten who God is and who, what God you serve. They listen to, and Haggai says all these things, and then the people started listening. He says, you know what? He's right. It says they began to fear the Lord. And God says, as long as you do this, as long as you fear me, and as long as you do what I say, he'll say, I am with you. And then the Lord stirred up the spirit of the leaders and the people. It was time to build his house. Point two is when your priority is God's will, he will be with you. It doesn't mean it will be easy to do God's will, as we've talked about, but it means he'll be with you. There's this story of a missionary in the eight, late 1800s, early 1900s named James Chalmers. On his first missionary trip, he got into two shipwrecks. How awesome is that? You go on your, your first missions trip and you get into two shipwrecks. Then he went to this other island to find it mostly Christian. But he decided to stay there and learn their language, learn their culture, and became a teacher. And then he just felt something in his heart and his spirit that he just said, you know what? These people are well-educated. There's Christian missionaries all over. And he felt like he needed to go somewhere else where Jesus wasn't being promoted, where it was a little bit more difficult. He decided to devote his life to a less tutored, educated group. And he went to a place called New Guinea. He stayed there and became a peacemaker. He was known as a peacemaker among the place. Wherever there was problems or dangers, he would kind of intervene and try to make peace, and people just seemed to listen to him. People began, were impressed by him, and they became just to listen to him. He left for a year to go back to Great Britain, but decided he needed to go back. His job wasn't complete. He couldn't get away from those people and felt like they still needed to hear the gospel. So he went back with another missionary, and in April... In the early 1900s, he and another missionary went to shore, but they were met with some angry natives. They were killed and eaten by the natives. Throughout his missionary time, he did write articles and books, but here's one thing he said. Recall the 21 years, give me back all its experiences. Give me its shipwrecks, Give me its standings in the face of death. Give me back my surrounding of savages with spears and clubs. Give back again the spears flying around me with the club knocking me to the ground. Give it all back to me and I will still be your missionary. He died at the age of 59. He faced danger. He faced death. 
He faced beatings. He was shipwrecked twice. And through all that, he said, you know what, God? Even on all that and the things I face, I would consider it a joy to still be your missionary. And he was called to go back, and he risked his life and, fa- and, and passed away because of his heart to see people know Jesus. I tend to think his priority was right, even when he gave up his own life. He said he would do it all over again, not because it was easy, but because he took God's priority over his own and God was with him. You know, I was telling Betty uh, the other day, um, I was in a, uh, a district um, thing several years ago, and, and this missionary who was a missionary from, like he was in Jordan and Egypt and Afghanistan and Iraq and all the Middle East places. And he faced jail time and all these things for preaching the gospel and, and doing God's work. And so he's sharing this story in, in, in detail. And, you know, there's not a dry eye in the place because just thinking about all the things he experienced and the things he left in the United States to go serve God in those places. And as he's talking and sharing his story, and he got to the end, and he asked us a very strange question. He said, those with kids, would you be willing to let them go to those places? And I was honest. I said, nope. Sorry, God. You can't have my girls to go there. I mean, send them to Australia, or send them to New Zealand, or send them to Ireland, Send them to less violent places. I'm good with that. But, man, if you ask them to go to these villages or you go to the Middle East and go to some dangerous places, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if I can trust God enough to have my girls in that. And so that was a discussion I was having that night. And I had to think for a second, man, does that mean that I'm not willing to see the gospel advance even if it meant my girl's life? It was something I struggled with. But you know what? I began to talk to God, and I said, okay, God, if you call them there, then that's where they need to go. Because I read that quote, and I said, you know what? This guy faced all kinds of trouble, and he said, you know what? Still, I would go, as long as you allow me to be your missionary. Why? Because God's priority should always be here, and our priority should be here. You know, it's like if we have a rope and we're holding tight to our rope and God's, you know, holding the other end and he's kind of pulling it and we're just like, no. But we just need to let loose of our priorities, point number one. It doesn't mean you let go of your priorities because we all have priorities and things we have to do, things we want to do. God's not saying you don't get to do any of that. But sometimes God is saying, I want to interrupt what you want to do in order for my work to be done. And so we got to hold our priorities loosely in order that God may have full control and be Lord over our life. Don't let your life become a distraction to God's work. Don't focus so much on building your own home while God's church lies in ruin. You see, when we're all done, and I, and I, I say this, but it's, it's when we're all done, when we breathe our last breath and we're taken in a split second from here to face Jesus, face to face, our spouse isn't there, our pastor's not there, our best friend's not there, it's just you and Jesus. And he's going to say this, he's going to say, I've given you talents, I've given you gifts, 
I've given you this and this and this and this. Now, what did you do with it for me? That's what he's going to ask. What did you do with everything I gave you? You were born in the United States, had a free country. You were able to talk about the gospel in some situations, in some places. I know some work and some jobs you can't, but you were able to talk about Jesus. You were able to have church with overall without being threatened to you know, be shot up. I know there's some churches that are facing that, but overall, we still have the freedom to, to preach the gospel. We have the freedom to, to, to send missionaries. Are we putting God's priority first? You could speak, you can comprehend, you can walk, you were placed in a certain area at a certain church during a certain time. With all that combined, Jesus is going to say, what did you do with my name? What did you do for me? See, we can easily make all kinds of excuses. I've been there. And I don't want this to be a sermon about money because it's not, but I struggled to tithe when I made 100 bucks a week. And this, you know, tithe 10%, $10. I'm like, that's a lot of money for me. I can't give that. I'm like, well, I guess I can. And then I, when I started making more money, I'm like, well, this, is a, this is a larger chunk for me. I need to give. But you know what? My priority was this. God, if you will, if you will use this money to see your kingdom advance, then I'm willing to forsake me going out to eat five times a week or, or seven times a week or, you know, not get a Starbucks $7 coffee or, you know, whatever. But I'm not saying you don't do those things, but I'm saying sometimes we have to sacrifice to see God's work be done. We need to keep his party. And that was a problem here in Haggai chapter one. The people were just listen to the government, listen to everybody else, and they just focused on their own life when God says, stop it. Do you not think I could take care of you? Do you not think I can help you build those houses as they are, but you left my house in ruins, so I'm going to make sure the land is dry. I'm not going to give you what you need to survive. I'm not going to allow food to come up. And then what are you going to do? You have your nice house, but you can't eat. You have your nice house, but you can't stay warm. Why? Because God's house is lying in ruins. Now, this isn't about a building or how a building should look or any of that, but it's about our priorities are we giving God our best? And moving forward, as we'll talk about in a few minutes for the business meeting and the vision for the church, God has called us to move forward. God has called us to do some things. And we just need to make sure our priorities match with his will. Because it's not about us. It's about him. We have to lay down our lives at the altar. We have to sacrifice our lives in order for him to grow. Think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, his ministry or church, whatever, was growing by the droves. People were coming to get baptized. People, he had all these disciples. And Jesus comes on the scene. And he baptizes Jesus, and God says, this is my son. And John the Baptist says, okay, then I got to decrease, he's got to increase. Because it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And even when John the Baptist is in prison, he's like, are you sure that's the guy? And 
And the report was this, that the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. John the Baptist was like, cool, I'm good. I can die peacefully because it wasn't about me, it was about him. And I did my part. I was a forerunner for the Son of God. So I can just take a back seat and let the show go on because the star is here. The spotlight is on Jesus, not us. And I, and I have a problem sometimes when the spotlights are on pastors or the spotlights are on churches. Listen, the churches are all his. The New Covenant is not my church. New Covenant is not your church. It is his church. And if it's his church and we make sure that's his church and we make sure the priorities are right, then God's going to take care of his church as long as we do what we're called to do. And that's why I believe that, you know, it might look rough, but you know what? God's still here. And that should be enough to get us through to tomorrow, get us through to next Sunday. Why? Because God is going to do something as long as we keep him Lord and God. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us Help us examine our own life and to see where our priorities are, are wrong. See where we just hold tightly onto things and, and not willing to give up. Thanks for listening. If you're in the area, I'd love for you to come by and be my guest.